0: Welcome to Babel Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East
1: and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Bob Springborg about his book, The Political Economies of the Middle East and North Africa.
0: To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Robert Springborg is the author of Political Economies of the Middle East and North Africa, a fellow of the Italian Institute of International Affairs, and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. He is a retired professor of national security affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School. Bob, welcome to Babel.
2: John, nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Your book has a striking opening. You point out that per capita, the Middle East and North Africa has 11 times the refugees, 10 times the number of internally displaced persons, 10 times the number of terrorist attacks, 14 times the number of battle deaths as the average state, and two-thirds of the world's known executions. Has the Middle East always been this way since you started studying the region?
2: Well, I suppose I can say... Fortunately, though, if we want to talk about the good old days back in the 1960s, it was a very different world. It was an optimistic world. This was the not immediate post-colonial era, but the shadow of colonialism was receding. And the optimism of what was replacing it in nationalist regimes of one sort or another was very manifest. So one was easily caught up the optimism of that era. Yes, it did have violence. But nothing like the magnitude that has subsequently developed, cast their minds back to Havana of the 50s. To some extent, this was the Middle East at the time. Aleppo was a city which was not unlike Havana at that time. That is to say, it was a boomtown. The generation of wealth out of the Jazeera through cotton and other cultivation by irrigation, as well as Syria's important role in trade in the region, had stimulated a tremendous amount of bourgeois growth as manifested by long tail-fin Cadillacs and the like prowling the streets of the old city of Aleppo. You had this sense that, wow, this was a place where things were happening. Art, poetry, so on, were really flourishing then. Since that time, these various indicators of political breakdown and decay have become all too manifest of a general broader decay of the political economies. And so the book was an attempt to sort of try to wrestle with what are the causes of this decay and what can be done to arrest that decay.
0: Now, this is a book about the political economy of the Middle East and North Africa, assuming that it makes sense to talk about it as a region. What are the most important similarities in the political economies of this region across really varying sizes of states and quite varying levels of wealth between states.
2: The title of the book is Political Economies of the Middle East, North Africa, is suggesting that they are not the same. They do differ, but they share a certain heritage. And that heritage is not just colonial, which is the one that's most frequently pointed to, but it's pre-colonial. Namely, some of the countries of the Middle East, such as Turkey, Iran, Egypt, to a lesser extent, Tunisia and Morocco had states, and they retained a lot of the capacities that they had established going back well before the colonial era. So the argument that everything was destroyed and everything was equalized by the colonial encounter was really wrong. So the region was speckled by states with reasonably good histories of state capacities, and those that were created by colonialism and then passed into a nationalist period, and then those who simply imported a colonial model of a state and many of the civil servants to man it from the West. So you ended up with a patchwork quilt of three different types of states, those with a long history, those with a much shorter history and a radical anti-colonial phase that in many of them, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and so on, have led to frailty at the best and collapse at the worst. And then a series of monarchies, which really did import their models from the West, as well as Israel, which also imported its model from the West.
0: As you look around the world, is there something more coherent about the Middle East in terms of political economy than other regions? Are there parts of the world that you feel are similar to the Middle East in terms of political economy?
2: What's unique about the Middle East is that it's A cultural area. The cultural area is reflected in the Al Jazeera phenomenon. No other part of the world has anything equivalent to a media reach of the extent satellite broadcast Arabic media.
0: That's partly an issue of language and partly an issue of wealth, that you have state broadcasters in the Middle East with enough money to broadcast throughout the entire region without a real business model.
2: It's true, but the audience is more attuned to affairs throughout this region than our audiences elsewhere in the world. The entire Arabic-speaking world was caught up in a transnational media and an attunement to the politics of the region. Underpinning that, and this is where political economy comes in, was the integration provided by oil. Had there not been an oil boom post-1973, the degree of familiarity across the region would have been much less. The movement stimulated by the rise of the oil powers, the incorporation of expatriate labor, the dispatch of capital and ideas from the wealthier Arab states to the poorer ones underpinned what we can call the Al Jazeera effect. The political economy sinews were there to make it possible for a Moroccan to take an interest in affairs in Palestine In other Arab countries, they had real interest in it. So the region became integrated, not just culturally, linguistically, but also in terms of the life strategies of individuals living within it. They may end up in the Gulf. They may end up working in Libya. They may end up having an investment partner from the Gulf. And so this region, at that level, became one of the most integrated, if not the most integrated in the world. But on the other hand, the selfishness is one way of putting it, of the different regimes of the region and their worries about penetration of their countries and of their governments by outside forces has rendered virtually impossible the integration of the region in a way equivalent to that of the European Union. It's an area that integrated at a political economy and cultural level, but not at an institutional level. So regional integration associations simply don't exist in any meaningful way. They exist in their hundreds, none of which really has any serious meaning at all. So it's a curious paradox that the political economy integrated the region at a human level, but didn't do so at an institutional level.
0: What do you make of cultural arguments that there's a religious element to the authoritarianism in the region? There are some people who point to Islam. And the institutionalization of Islam is is teaching a sort of obedience, culture, submission. Do you think that tells somebody anything about the Middle East, or do you think that's completely beside the point?
2: Political economy arose in part as a reaction against, to coin a term here, the over of Middle Eastern studies and the attribution to Arabic culture, Arabic language itself, and Islam the causal factors explaining the performance and underperformance of the region. I'm not sure if we threw the baby out with the bathwater or not. I do think culture is important. I think the ignorance of the importance of culture is something that really should be addressed. If you take the world value surveys, then there is a very strong cluster of Arab-Muslim states along certain characteristics that... It includes a combination of respect for authority, as well as a focus on materialism as opposed to idealism in one's approach to public life. That politics are based on patron-client networks in which it is the reward for your being in that network that is so extremely important. Is culture the cause of the orientation towards politics as instrumentalism? or is it the opposite? Is contemporary Arab political culture influenced then by the fact that you don't have citizens, you have patrons and clients? I'm not sure, but I think these are important questions to investigate. I will confess right out, the book does not really investigate them, but I wouldn't want to dismiss culture as an important factor. I think it's in an interactive with the political economy in ways that are complex, poorly understood, and need further investigation.
0: A lot of the political economy work in the 1990s especially had an undertone of expecting the imminent democratization of the Middle East, the sense that rising literacy, communications, mobility would lead to a region that was more democratic, more liberal, more pluralistic. Not only have we not seen that, but we've seen the rise of governments and populations looking to the China model as an alternative, the idea that you can have an authoritarian state that is deeply involved in the economy that has a coercive police apparatus and delivers a tremendous rise in the standard of living and security to its population. And Middle Eastern populations want security as well as a rising standard of living Is the China model an alternative that Middle Eastern states are looking to, should be looking to? Is
2: it a shimera? You're absolutely right that recent polls, the Arab Barometer, for example, reveal very starkly how important performance is to evaluation of government. Tunisia, which many of us have lauded as being the exemplar of the country that came out of the Arab uprisings of 2011, in the strongest position to create an institutionalized democracy. And yet the Arab barometer data reflects the overwhelming concern that Tunisians have, not with political participation and other indicators of democratization, but with economic performance. Bread is naturally a priority. And this is a part of the world where one's orientation to authority is based largely on what authority does provide to one. So I think in the Middle East and North Africa, China is looked up to as a country that has indeed done that for its people within the Middle East itself. One frequently encounters individuals who are reflecting on the good old days when Nasser, for example, was able to provide public educations for people who had formerly been denied them, when Saddam Hussein was able to deliver development of Iraqi infrastructure, when Muammar Gaddafi was able to provide for his citizens a far higher standard of living than before. So I think there is The idea that economic performance can legitimate a regime, even ones as vicious and nasty as those of Gaddafi and Saddam. In its current form, it is a worry for Western democracies. They are themselves underperforming politically and to some extent economically. And so the luster has worn off at home, but also abroad. The West definitely needs to improve its act in the region, and at home, and its act has to include this vital economic dimension. It's not enough to preach democratization without making contributions of a more effective sort to economic growth in the region, and that would now be diversification, because it's clear the entire Middle East, North Africa region has to diversify its economies, and so far has not taken adequate steps to do that.
0: On that point of needing to have much better material progress. Do ideology and legitimacy play into political economy or is it really come down to can you actually deliver the goods?
2: I'm not sure ideology would be the right term because the region has been swept with different ideologies for a long time. None of them have really performed. The most recent casualty is Islamism, which has at least for the time being, seems pretty much a spent force, whether in Tunisia or Egypt or wherever. What sometimes goes under the name of ideology is adherence to subnational units of one sort or another, whether ethnic, religious, linguistic, so on. So as the macro system deteriorates at the national level or at the regional level, Then it's substituted by localist loyalties of one sort or another, and they then are sometimes dressed up with an ideology. One can think of Hezbollah in Lebanon as having done exactly that, or the popular mobilizational front in Iraq and its various constituent parts. But that's not ideology of the transcendental sort that one thinks about, let's say, of Marxism, which is to appeal to workers around the world of whatever linguistic, national, ethnic, or other group they might be a member of.
0: But there's also the ideology of neoliberalism, the sense that we need to move toward freer economies, toward freer political life. That's also an ideology.
2: It is. And like the others, has largely failed. The great boom of neoliberalism was in the wake of The huge expansion of globalization at the end of the Cold War from 1990 on, and America and other countries of the West were trying to export neoliberalism and the assumption that everything would turn out well, that this was our era, and it was a no-brainer that this system had proved its superiority, and everybody would love us, and they would all follow in our wake, proved to be... Absolutely profoundly and dramatically wrong. Neoliberalism did not deliver. What neoliberalism did was to reflect and enhance the power distributions and the variations of power, economic and political, that were already there. The rich became richer, the poor did not catch up. Yes, there was some growth by virtue of oil monies, but more than that, not really. So the Middle East, which had been proclaimed to be a relatively equal area by the World Bank through its various Gini indices. Most recent work has shown that it's a profoundly unequal area, and that inequality has increased. So neoliberalism that was meant to float all ships didn't work that way. It was an ideology like the others that did not perform well, and so the luster has definitely gone off it.
0: You've been looking at the Middle East for a while. You've been involved with institutions that are trying to provide assistance to the Middle East for a long time. You've done consulting. As you think back, what have you concluded about the malleability of Middle Eastern institutions? What parts are more malleable and what parts are proving deeply sticky for people both in the region and beyond who want to change them?
2: There's basically a wall between those who are exercising power and those who are powerless. And that wall in the Middle East is patrolled by the deep states, in which are described in detail in the book. Those who are in a position of power and who are fearful for their status and who are relying upon deep states to patrol the border so that others are not able to penetrate it, and so that the rewards, political and economic, go to those inside the limited access order, not on the outside of it, they have very little reason to change. So it's not government, or at least central government, where one is going to find an enthusiastic backer of some new idea of running an educational system or paving the roads or whatever. It's those on the outside who, are disempowered, who have a much bigger incentive to want to pick up a new idea and run with it, not only because they are less jaded, but because they have an incentive to think of doing things in a different way. So in education, for example, the further one is from the Ministry of Education, typically, the more likely one is to find receptive ideas to teacher empowerment and decentralizing curricula development into schools themselves. Similarly, with security assistance to militaries, the top brass is typically pretty careful about any sort of innovations and meritocratic-based promotions, as opposed to those based in patronage and the determination by the top brass itself. Innumerable American military officers who've been involved in training in the Middle East and North Africa comment on this phenomenon, how they find junior officers really receptive to ideas and quite gung-ho about doing things in an American way, but that they can't sell it higher up the chain of command. The answer to this really does lie in where the individual or institution is within the overall access order. If it's on the inside of it, then you're not going to get much responsiveness because they are inherently defensive. They will make enough changes that they see will maintain, if not enhance their power, But changes that would really impact things, those are far less likely to do for that sort of response. Then you have to go to the periphery. And so much of developmental work in the Middle East, North Africa now is peripheral in its nature. And I know the CSIS was itself involved in that sort of work. Working with central government has proven not to go well for USAID, GTZ, all the rest of them. So they go to local government to try their hand there and generally speaking, have more success.
0: But one reason that central governments are proving more open to this is because we are clearly on the verge of a global energy transformation that not only is coming, but is likely to come within the lifetimes and anticipated ruling periods of many of the region's leaders. And Saudi Vision 2030 is just the largest and best known. But throughout the region, we're seeing the Gulf states feeling like the status quo isn't durable. And it seems to me that a change in global energy markets isn't only going to affect the energy exporting states. It's also going to affect the labor exporting states that make billions in remittances from sending workers from... Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, into energy exporting states. Are you seeing this as an opportunity for elites to genuinely get on board with change from the center? And are you seeing any sign that elites are interested in taking that opportunity?
2: If I could refer to another idea of the book to try to answer your question, Infrastructural power refers to the nature of interactions between states and societies. And the more the interactions allow uh, flow backwards and forwards between states and societies, the policy ideas can be generated in society, can be examined, looked upon, and decided about by the states and then clearly communicated to their populations. So to what extent is this model? of infrastructural power or public brain power operating in the Middle East and North Africa? And the answer is hardly at all, precisely because of the limited access orders that keep societies away from not only contributing to the making of decisions, but even to know what the policies are. So there are prerequisites for trying to turn on a dime the Middle Eastern energy economy to be more diversified, and to provide greater returns at the level of individuals. And those prerequisites really are effective interaction between state and society. To go back to Vision 2030 in Saudi, for example, like all the other vision statements, they were created by Western consulting firms with no input from local citizens. And the Western consulting firms are very mindful that they're contract is being written by those within the limited access order and who are not wanting to rock the boat. The Vision 2030, whether in Egypt, Oman, or the Emirates, or wherever they are, and they are everywhere, reflect that. These are plans concocted within the confines of limited access order and largely divorced from reality. The one that was furthest divorced was the plan for Lebanon, and it was drawn up less than two years before the absolute collapse of the country. So I don't think it's going to be easy for the visions to be successful. In the absence of a more effective engagement with citizens who will come on board and who ultimately have to play a role in the implementation of whatever that plan is. Not to be simply ordered to do so, but to really put their shoulder to the wheel in whatever form it's going to take. And it's going to take human resource development. And the quality of educational systems in the Middle East is abysmal. You have vast numbers of years of education and investments in education that are wasted in the Middle East and North Africa. So if you're going to diversify a highly sophisticated oil economy and take it into new areas for the use of hydrocarbons, and you're going to engage in ever-expanding citizenship in it, then you have to educate your population at a much more effective level. It takes a generation to do that. You don't just turn the switch on education. The idea that you're going to implement a dramatic change to the region-wide, and you rightly point out it is region-wide, is fanciful. It's just not going to happen in that time period. And in the meantime, the stresses and the strains mount. The threat posed to the incumbent orders within these limited access regimes is growing ever more profound, and they are responding not by opening up, but by cracking down yet more. I
0: went to graduate school in the 1990s, and there was an optimism to some of the political economy work that was written then. Nazia Yubi overstating the Arab state had a chapter about how we can get toward greater democratization in the region, or at least greater pluralism and liberalization. As I read your book, it didn't feel like a very optimistic book at all. What are the green shoots of optimism that you see? Where do you think really interesting and promising experiments are taking place, being allowed to take place? Where are people doing things that really seem to you to have hope?
2: Our Latin American colleagues coined this term transitology, and it refers to the transition from an authoritarian regime. The coalition formation that's necessary for A transition to be successful, is one that brings together moderates within the limited access orders with those outside of it. So that both of them see it's in their interest to moderate their demands and to form a coalition with someone on the other side of the wall. And if you look for the signs of elites who are willing to reach out to others, And those on the outside who are willing to do business with these somewhat discredited elites, you'll find them. These are difficult transitions. They're more difficult than Latin America. The assessment by those who did comparisons between Latin America and the Middle East always said that the sultanism, to use their term, that prevails in the Middle East is the most difficult one in which to secure transitions away from authoritarianism. And that's true. So to be overly optimistic would be foolish, but to give up hope would also be foolish. I don't think one should do that. I think one has to take a look at a pragmatic and programmatic level to see, well, what can we do to reform the quality of education? What's possible within that system? And to be able to engage at a higher level in backing it. You want to operate in programmatic areas and engage experts who are in authority and who have no authority. And that way you're in a better position to create public brain power simply by the exercise of trying to improve education or public services of different sort or whatever they might be. I don't think there's reason to give up hope, but you gotta know this is a tough game to play.
0: Bob Springboard, thank you very much for joining us on Babel.
2: Thank you for having me, John.
1: Next, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about the political economies of the Middle East. So one of the things that Bob Springborg really tried to emphasize was that his book is on the political economies of the Middle East rather than the political economy of the Middle East as a whole. When is it useful from a political economy perspective to think of the region as a whole? And when should we start to break it down?
0: It's hard to say. I mean, the region, of course, has really wealthy countries, really poor countries. It has republics and monarchies, but he also talked about the interpenetration. And I think there's even more of a cultural interpenetration in the region than there is a political interpenetration, certainly economic. One of the strange things about the Middle East is how little Middle Eastern countries trade with each other. It's partly because of oil, but it feels that in a lot of ways, the normal ways that a place like Southeast Asia, Europe, Latin America interact with each other haven't really developed, but there is this very common religious culture. There's a language that's not completely, but largely shared. And there's a way in which some of the softer aspects of the region make it a really coherent region. And some of the ways we normally think about regions integrating really haven't taken root in the Middle East, partly because each individual system has such an interest in maintaining the integrity of its own system. There have been efforts in the past to sort of break through the barrier, but for the most part, every country in the region has a pretty high wall to external political involvement. We see some of the Cold War between Saudi Arabia and the UAE on one side and Qatar on the other in the last decade. But for the most part, each individual country seems to be fairly self-contained. And when it's not, like in a place like Lebanon or Iraq, it's a source of
3: conflict. Very broadly speaking, something that seems to unite a lot of countries in the region is the inability or the unwillingness of the political elite to establish relationships with their societies that are mutually beneficial. And very often the elites will turn to either repression or patronage as a way of ruling and as a way of cementing their rule. In his book, I think Bob Springborg sort of talks about this as something that does seem to make the Middle East a bit more unique to some other regions, that so many states have opted for that approach.
1: I guess thinking about this idea that the Middle East is very integrated, but kind of on this cultural level, how do we see that play out when states interact with each other, when they respond to outside threats? How does that, being culturally integrated but not politically integrated, play out in the Middle East, as opposed to a place like Europe? So I think we
3: could maybe take the example of the Mashrek for this, the Eastern Mediterranean. So countries like Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, the main cities in that area were very well integrated for a huge amount of history. And they share very close ties in a lot of ways. Culturally, they speak very similar dialects of Arabic. There are often links between families, between tribes that go across the countries. But what is really quite striking is that colonialism first severed a lot of these ties as they created new borders. But then since then, the elites in these countries have really tried to shore up their own power domestically and have viewed efforts to integrate their economies with their neighboring states as a threat to that power, even if it might be economically beneficial for their people. We did some work on prospects for regional integration in this area, especially looking beyond the Syrian conflict. Will there be new opportunities? And unfortunately, the conclusion is there will be very limited opportunities because of politics it may be the case that these countries are at different stages of industrialization, they have different labor costs, and that means they each have comparative advantages in different areas and trying to produce different kinds of things. But politics means that the elites are really concerned that if they open up their borders too much, they will lose their power. That's partly about stopping additional movement of people, Clearly, Lebanon and Jordan do not want more Syrians to come into their countries. I think it's also a feeling that as they open up to trade, they kind of lose some of this grip that they have over their country's economies. And so you can say, sure, from an economic perspective, it makes perfect sense for them to be integrated. But from a political sense, these tensions and these histories will prevent that.
0: And if you think about the Eastern Mediterranean, it's an example of just how different culturally similar places can be. You have Lebanon, which is a sectarian republic with very clear roles ascribed to different groups, but genuine elections to select representatives. You have Syria, which is a dictatorship that has become sectarianized, but in no way resembles the way government in Lebanon works. And then you have a monarchy like Jordan which has its own system, where sectarianism doesn't play any role whatsoever. There's also this sort of interesting thing, though, that there's a subtle integration between Syria and Lebanon, and there's a way in which Lebanese have to go to Syria to settle political disputes. There's a way in which Syria has economic influence over Lebanon, generally not in positive economically productive ways, but sometimes in more coercive ways.
1: So thinking about the different systems and the systems that Bob Springborg talked about, I think he said there were fragile states, there were the monarchies, and then there were the authoritarian republics. Do those systems cooperate? If you break it down, would they be more integrated?
0: I don't think that distinguishes it. I think what's distinguished in the last three quarters of a century has been not only how much oil and gas these countries have, but how widely it needs to be shared. So have a place like Qatar with tremendous amounts of natural gas and a very small population, a place like Iraq that has a lot of oil, but a lot of people it has to be divided between, or Iran with a lot of oil and gas and a lot of people it has to be divided between. I think probably the most determinative aspect has been first, how central the state is in directing the economy and supporting the population and how much resource the state has to do that. And I think if you parse those things out, that gives you a spectrum that's pretty indicative of how Middle Eastern economies work.
1: Thinking about oil and natural gas, as the region faces this energy transition away from hydrocarbons, do you think that that's going to open up more areas for cooperation, maybe more areas for Further integration as economies try to diversify away from oil? Or do you think it's going to become just more about competition and trying to get as much as they can while they can?
0: My guess would be explorations of both. The states will try to cooperate, states will compete, states will experiment. And nobody has a clear idea of how the energy transition is going to unfold. Certainly, Egypt, with its offshore gas fines is in a different place than it was, but Egypt also has to divide the spoils between 100 million people and Qatar has to divide its gas among something like 300,000 citizens. So I think there's going to be a lot of volatility, a lot of experimentation, and countries will come together and, and go apart. But it seems to me that of all the things that have affected the Middle East for the last 100 years, the energy transition is both the least well understood And the most impactful.
3: I agree, John. I think there will certainly be growing competition in some areas. We've seen hints of this between the UAE and Saudi Arabia. It looks like Saudi Arabia is trying to challenge the UAE in some of the areas, becoming more of a financial center, trying to emulate the UAE's success in the tourism sector in terms of diversifying their economies beyond the region as well. I think both have interests in sort of similar parts of the world. But that doesn't mean that that economic competition is going to really necessarily drive these countries apart from each other. I think they will still have many shared interests. I think the political relations between them are quite strong. And I think there are many areas where they'll continue to partner. And I don't think we should view The diversification as purely driving at the expense of partnership. I think partnership will remain in many areas.
0: It'll be interesting to see how much Israel becomes part of the region with the normalization agreements and the prospect of greater normalization agreements coming forward. But it also seems to me that the region hasn't quite figured out what the region's about. There was an idea of Arab nationalism early 20th century that took a more strident tone in the 1950s and 60s with Gamal del Nasser and the efforts to bring together and create a single state but I wonder if some of these normalization agreements and a sense that the energy transition is impending could be the catalyst for a different kind of regional unity we haven't seen much as will says it's deeply embedded in the way a lot of economic elites and political elites, often the same people, see their futures. But you could imagine that some of the relationship with Israel, the sense that the Gulf is changing, could open the door to a different way the region relates to itself, a different way the region relates to outside economies, to find a way to capitalize on the cultural unity of the region, create more economic integration. I could see it, but it would take a pretty bold move by some governments, which up to this point have been reluctant to be bold. Oftentimes, as we'll suggest, they see themselves more in competition than cooperation. But I think things may be changing enough that there may be opportunities to do that. Certainly, we're seeing energy trading cross-border with the prospect of being a very large issue. And that could also create some interesting ties that aren't there right yet.
1: John and Will, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you. Thanks for listening to
0: Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSAS Mideast.